2: from David Faber. So unusual. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Pete Najarian, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, Salesforce soars on a big earnings beat. The company's conference call just getting started we will bring you all the big headlines. Plus, Facebook goes shopping. We'll tell you about the social media giant's push into e-commerce. And later, the big baba breakout. The stock has been an absolute tear. One of our traders sees even more upside ahead. We'll bring you that trade. But we start off with the End of an era. Iconic American oil giant ExxonMobil getting booted from the Dow after nearly 100 years in the index. Exxon's tenure as the longest serving Dow component comes to an end on Monday when Salesforce, the cloud company, takes its place. Exxon's removal from the Dow is nothing less than a remarkable sign of the time's Just seven years ago, it was the largest publicly traded company in the United States. But since then, shares have been on a steady decline, and this year's no exception. Exxon is down more than 40 percent in 2020 on pace for its worst year ever. So is Exxon's removal from the Dow a sign that big oil is dead money? Guy Dami.
3: I think so, and it's something we've been saying for a while. So I think they finally came to the realization that, hey, look, The world's changed. Energy is not nearly as important to the U.S. economy as it was, to your point, a decade or so ago. And I guess we have to make a choice between Chevron and Exxon. And, you know, for whatever reason, I'm sure they obviously have their reasons, they picked Exxon to remove. I think Exxon's been in the Dow since 1928. So think about it. It's remarkable. And Tim commented on it last night. Tim knows this space a lot better than I do. But it's it's a huge deal to have Exxon removed that sends... Huge signals to the market saying basically, and Tim said this you know, energy is not nearly as important as it used to be, and the economy is changing. And what I find fascinating is, you know, we became energy independent probably at just the wrong time in terms of what's going on in the world. And that's not a political statement, that's just fact. So, in terms of the stock, we said it for a while. There's no compelling reason to own these names. If you want to own one, maybe Chevron is it, but I still think Exxon. Although I don't think it's going to trade down to that $30 level we saw in March. I do think it gets down to 36 37
2: I mean, Wall Street has been shunning these stocks for quite some time. Uh, you know, it's 2.5% energy is of the S&P 500. Ten years ago, it was 11% of the index. Uh, the amount of Wall Street uh, research on this sector has gone to lows here, Tim. But is that sort of a signal that perhaps this is deep value?
4: Well, deep value is always tough and and never buy commodities when they're cheap, buy them when they're expensive. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure you chase value here. Exxon's underperformed the S&P by 68% in the last five years. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, but as we're talking and setting the stage here for the drama, it, it's dramatic. I mean, this is a, essentially the, the key, the loan, or the, the, the primary descendant from J.D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil, uh, the history around this company, uh, the, the, the argument that, that energy and oil companies pushed around politics and pushed around geopolitics for years. You gave the stats. I mean, as little as 2017, this was the fourth largest company in the world. So not that far back, Uh, But when you think about the components of the indices and where they need to be representative of of where the market truly is, and frankly, where the economy is, uh, I do think that this is um, still a shocking move because, you know, oil and energy do need to be represented. uh, But I think the move in Exxon tells you just how the mighty have fallen.
2: Exxon's the biggest component of the XLE, the ETF that tracks the energy sector. But at the same time, Chevron is still in the Dow, Pete. I mean, are we making too much? Are we extrapolating too much from Exxon Mobil specifically getting booted from the Dow?
5: I don't think so. I I agree with the guys. And as a matter of fact, I think the reason Exxon over Chevron is Chevron actually has the lowest uh, debt to equity. And I think they've done a much better job fiscally of taking care of themselves as opposed to the ballooning debt that you're seeing over at Exxon. So I think that was the reason that Exxon was the choice between the two. Um, But I do think you have to have some representation of the energy space within the Dow. And that makes sense to me. And Chevron is a name that I actually own. It's been a poor performer. There's no doubt about it. These guys are right. They do continue to have the, uh, the the yield that you know you're sort of looking for with some of these names, but that's not the story. The story is I just sort of feel like at some point somebody in energy is going to start to move a little bit, and I feel like Chevron is the one name left. So I continue to own this name. It's not been very pleasant for most of this run, but I can totally understand. Uh, if you were going to pick one over the other, I picked Chevron, and I think I picked the right one.
2: You know, if this show weren't called Fast Money. I'd probably harp on this statistic, and this is from Sam Soval of of S&P, that the worst performing sector in one decade is typically the best performing sector in the next decade. And oil has had so far a pretty terrible, you know, 2000. So, So BK, would you say, you know what, maybe give some oil a chance here? (laughs)
6: Well, I think that's, you know, first of all, BK likes to be a contrarian, so everybody's on one side of the boat, he likes to run to the other. The very fact that we're asking the question, (laughs) is this dead money, is oil dead, it's no longer part of the economy, probably means most of that story has been into it. That being said, the charts look horrible, so I would not be buying these, I'd wait for a bounce, right? So that's number one, but number two, I'd be careful, I I would take a lesson if I was a big tech investor, particularly in something like Apple. I'm not sure in 2011, if I was sitting there with Exxon hitting new highs, the largest company in the world, I would have been able to tell you that nine years later, it would be kicked out of the Dow. Same goes for Apple today. What happens in nine years? You know, be careful what you wish for in a company like that.
2: Are you making some sort of prediction here or possibility here (laughs) that Apple, now the, the biggest company in the world... You know, arguably, well, it used to be one of the most, it still is, the most I mean, important stock in the stock market could suffer a huge decline in the next decade. That's your call? Of
6: course. <laughs> uh, sh- sure, why not? I mean, listen, if <laughs> I'm right, then fantastic. <laughs> I'll still be on TV in a decade. And if I'm wrong, I won't be here anyway. So, yeah, okay. That's my
2: call. Guy will remember. He's got a, a memory like an <laughs> elephant.
3: Like an elephant. My, an my elephant. only point is. And I'm, you know.
6: My only point is is that they, you do, sectors do flip-flop. Yeah. And so if you're looking at something like an apple, just be careful. Make sure you take some profits, I guess, is what BK said. All right.
2: Um, hold on. we got some breaking news. We'll, we'll continue this oil conversation in a moment. IPO markets got some news. Let's get to Josh Lipton for the details. Josh.
7: So, Melissa, Palantir here formally filing that S1. We were waiting for this. Just starting to comb through the document now, but let me bring you some some numbers that pop out at us. First half of 2020 revenue here 481.2 million. That's up 49 uh, percent from the first half of 2019. The net loss here clocks in at 164.7 million. Uh, that is a decrease uh, in the comparable period a year ago it was 280. Five million, And just to give some perspective, in 2019, they say their net loss was closer to 580 million. So we'll keep looking through this document and bring you more uh, metrics as we get them. But certainly, uh, this day, a long time coming, Melissa. You know, this, this is a company that first was created in 2003. Remember, Palantir is a software maker. It provides software to customers They use that to pull in uh, and integrate volumes of disparate data, so everything from images to spreadsheets. You pull that into a central platform, and then you can use that uh, to analyze that, interpret that, make sense of all that data, first really came to prominence work with government agencies i remember talking to ceo alex carp and you know he said you know in the world of software there's stuff that doesn't work well it's not useful he argued his software very useful he's, he told me and in some cases deadly and what he meant by that was the work this company does uh, with the U.S. military, with U.S. warfighters, and under CARP, they've also made this push into the commercial. So you have corporate customers, BP, uh, Merck, United Airlines, among them, Credit Suisse. Um, we know it's a company that also, though, has its fair share of critics, of controversy, certainly for the work it does with police with immigration officials, CARP has publicly even talked about. He's actually lost some employees himself because of that contract he has with ICE, but it didn't stop Uh, big headline investors from pouring money into this company, everyone from uh, BlackRock to Morgan Stanley. Melissa, back to you.
2: All right, Josh, thanks, Josh Lipton. And in the past 24 hours or so, we've gotten more than a half a dozen software IPOs uh, filed here. Pete Najarian, uh, does this help the sector overall in terms of valuations? Does it keep them afloat?
5: Well, uh, certainly, I think it just shows you exactly where people are seeing the growth, and people are are getting themselves in line, Mel, and I think that's really important. When you take a look at what's been, everybody's talking about the technology names that are absolutely leading, and they are, and obviously it's the big four or five, and they've been absolutely monsters, but even if you go down multiple different levels, and obviously we had Salesforce tonight, but going through so many different levels, whether it's cloud or software, it shows you that that is an area that is absolutely on fire, and I think that's sort of the rush that people have as they're pushing themselves out there, and I think it's important to get out there because... Oftentimes, people hold on too long in the private sector, and then it's just a little bit too late. And we've seen that with others over the last couple of years. So I think this is important, and I think it will be something that people will be very much attracted to, Mel.
2: Okay, more on software in just a minute. Let's get back to the energy markets here. Longtime oil analyst Paul Sankey of Sankey Research joins us now. On the fast line, Paul. Great to speak with you. Welcome back. Oh, there you are. There you are. The Hi, you Paul. Doing? Good to see you. Um, so, when you heard that Exxon was being booted, what was your reaction? You've been you've been an energy analyst for for how long? I'm sure Exxon has been in your coverage for almost that whole time.
8: Well, look, you know, your, your whole debate about decades of under and outperformance is is spot on. You know, when I started in 1990, you couldn't give away an oil stock. Uh, the 2000s, as you know, was a huge for for oils, and we've had an absolute disaster and The past decade, and I firmly believe that the next decade is going to be great for these stocks. The thrown out of the Dow is sort of irrelevant in its own way, but of course it is, as you say, an ignominious moment in uh, in history and and a humbling one. But Exxon's yield is now not—you haven't mentioned—you guys are all spot on, but you haven't mentioned this nine, nearly nine percent yield, and really a model that we're now looking at as a tobacco stock type option, where ultimately, as the companies really focus on dividend. And increasing uh, free cash flow, and and really don't try and grow. Uh, this is going to be a very different investment case over the coming decade. And furthermore, now that we're not chasing growth, uh, you're going to see oil prices, uh, I think, rally back very very strongly over the next five years.
4: Hey, Paul, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. So you're talking hey, about the dividend first. I mean, is it safe? Is it is it absolutely uh, uh, ironclad and then relative value of the super majors of the big integrateds. Why Why is Exxon performing so much more poorly than Chevron or Conoco?
8: Well, to start with that one, they've made some bad strategic mistakes, in my opinion, over the past 10 years. We we'll go back to the XTO deal, uh, the entrance to Iraq yeah. and more recently, the pursuit of growth in the Permian, I thought was a huge mistake. Uh, but the yield now has been absolutely reaffirmed by the management on the, on the Q2, the, the most recent call. They absolutely stated they're going to keep paying the dividend. And if you think about the uh, financial firepower of Exxon, I think they absolutely will pay this. By the way, Chevron just borrowed money at its lowest ever coupon. So don't underestimate the financial firepower of these companies to pay you. Of course, you've seen a dramatic change of strategy, a huge change of strategy from BP going after the uh, environmentally friendly theme um, but ultimately having to cut their dividend in half to do that. More importantly BP said they would cut their volumes by 40 percent which again underlines that you're going to get uh, a really t- a tightening supply side here as demand uh, post-COVID recovers and by the way COVID showed you how dependent we are on oil uh, that's, that's absolutely incontrovertible. I mean the fact is what you've seen is how the world economy still runs on oil And the whole environmental theme is really a problem for utilities. Uh, The transport side of oil is still very strong and will remain so. There really is almost no penetration of electric vehicles. And it's impossible to penetrate into jet fuel and and ships. So ultimately, I think people are, this is a cyclical low for these names as well as a secular low. Uh, I see the cyclical and the secular both shifting positively here.
3: So it's interesting, Paul, and you're, the, you're the actually you're the go-to person in the space for a long time now, and I respect that. So I'll push back and say I understand how important oil was to economies globally 10 years ago. I understand what it is now, but, you know, with new administrations potentially around the world, this all the talk about ESG investing, the push towards greener uh, energy, is oil a decade? And, you know, BK pulled out his Palantir or, or Seeing Rocks a decade from now. Is oil going to be as important a commodity in a decade from now? Will we talk about it the same way you're talking about it now?
8: It's going to depend on electric cars. You know, I think that, that you can obviously see the share price performance of Tesla and the market buying into the idea of electric cars. But in the medium term, the next five years, what we're doing is we're re-suburbanizing in the U.S., and that's going to be driven by gasoline. And as I mentioned, really, for jet fuel and ships, uh, uh, you, there is no electric option. So it's all about transport additionally if you look in in china and india you still have a huge amount of consumption of oil for example through propane and other fuels that will just keep growing so you know the market obviously is buying the fact that we're going to shift the energy system here and i've been saying for 15 years that the 21st century will be driven by electricity but the reality is you've gone too far and you are underestimating or overestimating the ability of the global economy to shift towards alternate fuels and you can see that really visibly in California and by the way that's entirely an electricity problem uh, which again is a problem for utilities so although the theme is being bought so hard the reality is going to be that these companies will be paying out big dividends and I think even buybacks over the course of the next five years and that will be very attractive to shareholders.
2: Last quick question, Paul, as you said, that uh, people will cycle out of growth and go into names like ExxonMobil. This almost sounds like a a sort of prediction, maybe a pairs trade uh, of, of, of shorting some sort of growth stock, maybe like an Apple, which is just diametrically opposed to Exxon at this moment in the markets and going long Exxon.
8: Yeah, I'd add one more thing. Look, we're going to get inflation. And if you get inflation, growth stocks are going to be a problem. And the way you're going to manifest inflation, in my view, is by rapidly rising oil prices. So there's not going to be inflation until we tighten the oil market. When we do, oil's going to go back to the moon. And you mentioned how quickly Exxon deteriorated. Don't forget that at the end of last year we were at $60 a barrel, and it seems you know a lifetime ago. Uh, as for shorting Apple and 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 buying Exxon here, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll come back in five years and we'll see how we <laughs> do. Back at the beginning of the 2000s, when I first came to the U.S., I used to bet salesmen, you name any stock and I'll bet you against my stock. And they would come up with some terrible small cap name. I would come up with Exxon. I never lost that bet. I haven't made it for 10 years. I'm making it today. I'll go for it.
2: All right. You're booked, Paul. 2025 we will have you back on, maybe sooner. (laughs) Paul Sankey, of Sankey Research. Great to see you.
8: It's great to see you. Thanks.
2: BK, you with Paul on this pairs trade?
6: Yeah, Paul's my type of guy. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's I think his point is well founded is that, you know, I think the biggest thing in the oil market that investors have to watch is there has been a lack or a reduction in exploration and spending on that. So at some point that oil market tightens up, and look at what oil did today. It's a bit hurricane-driven, but you're looking at WTI above forty-three and a half dollars. You're looking at Brent above forty-six. It looks like it's starting to break out. So once these things get going, and you get any type of disruption in the supply of this oil, you could have a much higher oil price, which I think would ultimately filter back into. Exxon and Chevron.
2: All right. Well, the company replacing Exxon on the Dow just reported results Salesforce jumping after hours as the company's earnings call gets underway. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with the very latest. D. Hey,
9: Melissa. CRM certainly on a roll. Biggest earnings beat in 13 years. And if shares can stay up more than 12.5% tomorrow a.m., this would be the best post earnings jump in nearly a decade. Uh, Mark Benioff calling this one of the best quarters in Salesforce's history but against the backdrop of multiple crises. And this is a tone certainly we've heard from other companies that have seen their business surge amid the pandemic. He reiterated that sentiment on the earnings call. That kicked off just about 15 minutes ago. CFO Mark Hawkins adding that while they are optimistic about the future, they remain mindful of how the pandemic may continue to impact their customers in their community. Uh, Now, Jeffrey's analyst Brent Thill, he was on CNBC not too long ago, and he said that there have been questions for this company around whether it is a work-from-home play, saying this quarter proves that it is. Now, investors also coming to appreciate Benioff's M&A spree over the last few years. While it has weighed on margins, those moves are now showing up in financial results. This quarter, adjusted earnings came in more than double the street's expectation. Key, of course, Melissa, for any work-from-home play, though, is it sustainable? We continue to listen for any commentary on demand on the call. And lastly, do not miss Mark Benioff himself on Mad Money with Kramer tonight. Back to you.
2: Pietro Bosa, thank you very much. Of course, Salesforce saw about a 3% pop on news that it was being added to the Dow. So in the past day, it has gained about 15%, roughly. Uh, and it probably had, Guy, every reason for people to take profits.
3: Yeah, and I can understand why you'd be inclined to take profits after this move. But, you know, it's interesting. The previous high, you go back into February, the stock topped out around 190 or so. And I remember in the middle of June, we said, you know, if this get a close above 190 in Salesforce, it's probably off to the races into earnings. And that's sort of what's happened. Uh, so, look, I mean, is, there, is the discipline thing to do to take money off the table? Yes. But you look at this quarter and say it's remarkable on just about every metric they guided higher I mean, it's a it's a fast it's a great company. People will push back and say it close to seventy times, even with the uh, up guidance next year's earnings. is expensive, but my inclination is I know it's going to sound hard to believe. I think you stay with the name and after this number.
2: Pete, you in this in any way?
5: I'm not. I don't own uh, Salesforce, no. But I can tell you that uh, I agree with Guy. I mean, wh- I think the, the really important point that was brought up by Deidre was. The idea of all the acquisitions, and it was he'd done some huge, monstrous ones, Mel. I mean, across the board, it seems like every year we'd see another gigantic acquisition. And when are they ever going to be something that we're going to be able to see? Well, I think we're starting to see that now. And I think it's something that's very important, because when you look at that guidance, the guidance is so far, the full-year guidance is so far in front of what everybody expected. Had they not had that guidance... I actually think you would have seen some profit-taking, Mel, because of the run that it's been on in this sprint to the upside to these new highs. But I think because that guidance was so strong, it just built upon it. And that's why we're seeing the stock trading where it is right now in the after hours.
2: Yeah. Tim, quick thoughts?
4: Well, CRM is always expensive. Software is even more expensive than CRM. So relative value in the space, you know, there's an argument that this is cheap relative to Adobe, et cetera. Uh, The margin overhang is still something I think you have to be concerned about. But as the guys are talking about, um, the spending and the acquisitions are things that at least you see bearing fruit. Um, I don't chase this thing. I, I, I just can't. Um, but I understand what Mark Benioff has done, and he's been phenomenally successful.
2: All right. Again, the conference call is still underway. We'll keep an eye on that with the stock up 13 percent right now. Coming up, shares of Toll Brothers on the move after reporting earnings will tell you what the home-building giant is saying about the red-hot housing market. And later, Facebook breaking out to a record high as the street crowns a new top bull. We'll talk about that and the social media giant's latest push into e-commerce. Stay with us. Much more Fast Money after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Toll Brothers. The stock is rallying in the after hours on a big beat. Let's get to Diana Olick with the very latest. Diana.
0: Yeah, Melissa, no surprise, a strong beat for Toll Brothers, both on earnings per share and revenue, as the luxury home builder takes advantage of growing demand for larger, more high-tech homes with big outdoor spaces. Third-quarter net signed contracts were the highest third-quarter ever for the company in both units and dollars, and contracts per community were the highest third quarter in 15 years. Toll Brothers CEO Doug Yearly said the strength has continued into August, adding, we attribute the surge in demand to a number of factors, including historically low interest rates, a continued undersupply of homes, And consumers focused more than ever on the importance of home. He called this a resurgent housing market, saying toll was well-positioned on both location and price. We saw new home sales overall surge 36 percent higher in July annually, with prices up over 7 percent. And mortgage rates, of course, continue to hover near these record lows, and that is helping light a fire under prices. He also gave strong guidance. For Q4 as well, Melissa.
2: Any comments from Yearly, Diana, about uh, Toll Brothers City Living? I mean, re- in recent years they've made big pushes into cities like New York City and, and Jersey, et cetera. And I'm just wondering what, what's going on there.
0: Yeah, that's what we're waiting to hear from the conference call. But we don't get that till tomorrow morning. Uh So we just got the press release today and that's all we got. So we'll get to you on that tomorrow morning. But got it. Yeah, you can expect there will be a lot of questions about the city, especially when we see this outflux of people and prices coming down in New York City, especially where toll
2: is heavy. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick on Toll Brothers up by uh, 2.4 percent right now. BK housing. You still like this trade?
6: I, I do for the time being, so it's certainly benefiting from this city exodus, and, and so that is one thing, that's the tailwind that you have. Uh, toll specifically, I do want to hear the conference call on what they're doing in the city, because if, they're, if people are leaving, that's going to be a problem, but what I'm concerned about is lumber prices. They've almost tripled since April, and so at some point in time, Toll has to raise their prices and or they just can't get the lumber, and that's how this trade falls apart. But until I see that, I think you still stay with this trend, and you can buy ITB over the XHB. ITB is more the home builder, home construction, rather than the uh, the home accessories.
5: Oh,
2: so would you rather, Pete, XHB or ITB?
5: Uh, I'd I'd probably rather be in the XHB just because of the format of what they've got in, in there. But I would say this about toll. I think, Mel... BK brings up a very important point. We all know about lumber prices. We've been watching that go higher. But these guys already had some great margins. The cancellation rates are very low relative to what people were expecting. And I just think that there's a lot more upside for many of these builders, not just Toll, but even the, the balance of the other guys as well. I think, I think this is an incredible uh, a quarter for Toll, and it's really impressive how they've been able to modify what they're doing. And I think because, and we heard Diana put up the idea about What she was talking about with the prices and the pricing being up about 7%. So they're able to pass that along as people are going through this whole myriad of different changes in lifestyle and everything and life changes that we're seeing. Obviously, we do have to be concerned a little bit about what's going on within the inner city. But obviously, the the move out, I think, is very important. And that's where toll really is.
2: Guy, how how much longer do you think this move out is going to be investable? I mean, I'm a New Yorker for through and through, I mean, so I'm it, hoping that I mean, I'm it, hoping the city still has life to it. But, you know, at some point, there, companies are still going to say you have to come to the office for some period of time.
3: Yeah, the city's not going away. I know there's been this big James Altucher, uh, Jerry Seinfeld debate on yeah. vis-a-vis the New York <laughs> Post. And I, I've never seen Seinfeld, and Pete makes fun of me all the time. The, the, first, the next Seinfeld I see will be the first one, but that's sort of neither here nor there. I think it can continue. And we talked about this a week or so ago. We said, you know, you have the three major home builders. DHI is absolutely broken out to the upside. And you look at that chart, that's true. We said Pulte Homes was having trouble at this double top from February, which is still true even today. But the laggard had been toll up, toll brothers. And toll brothers is moving back to those February highs. I think it continues. I think you stay long, TOL.
2: All right. Lots more Fast Money coming up. Here's a a little taste of what's next.
6: We're counting down to the Fed's virtual Jackson Hole conference. Why this year's online gathering could be even more important for your money than in years past. And later, Ant Financial, marching toward what could be the biggest IPO in history. What it means for Alibaba and what it says about investments in the Chinese tech space. We've got that and a lot more when Fast
1: Money returns.
10: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. The clock is ticking toward what could be one of the most important speeches of Jerome Powell's career. The Fed chair delivering remarks Thursday at the Fed's annual economic symposium, usually held in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, not this year. Let's bring in Steve Leisman with more on what we can expect. So I guess no fishing for you, Steve, no fishing for any of those guys this year. Um, last year, it's interesting, it was the trade war that he was the, going to comment on. There was on never or... any
1: fishing, Melissa. Oh, sorry. Melissa, there no was never no fishing and fishing. No, li-
2: no live about. music either, right? Never.
1: Yeah, you, you, you need to get your story straight on sorry, that. It was sorry. all work all uh, the time. I'll, yeah,
2: I'll fact check Go ahead. better sorry, here. what was your question? Um, I- I last year, he he had the challenge of the trade war to sort of— navigate around. And this yeah. year, it is a global pandemic. What, what do you think he's going to set the table for?
1: Well, I think he's going to set the table for all of that. Uh, he's had a pretty consistent message on that, which is, I think, that the uh, markets and, and uh, policymakers need to uh, hope for the best and plan for the worst. He, uh, the Fed has been pretty consistent on this Melissa, that that the possibilities of worse outcomes are at least an even chance. Um, and he has urged uh, the fiscal side to uh, get ready to do more and to do more, while at the same time uh, saying that the Fed is wide open. But there's a broader thing going on, Melissa, as you know, which has to do with this strategic review the Federal Reserve is going to be involved in. And they're going to lay out this new policy that we think is going to involve average inflation. And essentially, I think the way to think about that is, letting inflation run a little hotter for a while um, uh, so that to make up for the lost inflation of years past. And, uh, you know, they have not hit their 2 percent target for, I don't know, almost a decade now, maybe once in the past decade or so. Uh, But they really haven't hit it. And the idea of average inflation would be don't raise rates until you're making up for the inflation that you lost.
2: So basically, this is going to be a very long term sort of plan then. I mean, there, there's no sign of inflation. So the, the thought of, of introducing this is sort of, it's almost comical.
1: I wouldn't quite go comical, but I will say that I join you, Melissa, if what you mean is skeptical, because I do mean that. Uh, uh, first of all, I'm not sure this represents a change to any of your traders' understanding of what the Fed is going to do. I mean, uh, Powell made a very consequential shift pretty early on in his uh, uh, tenure, which was to say... We're not trying to get back to normal. We're only going to raise rates when we see inflation. Uh, And then this uh, pandemic came along, and I think Powell has also been pretty clear about the idea that we we are not preemptively raising inflation. We're going to keep rates down. And in response to one of my questions, once he said, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising uh, uh, interest rates. And then in response to the next meeting, to another reporter's question, he said, we're not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates. And so he added another thinking about there. Which means I think that all of your traders are kind of sitting pretty, you know, relatively comfortable that they are not in the horizon that they care about looking at any interest rate hikes. What the Fed now is doing is, I think, are formalizing a procedure. I don't think it changes very much. that's out there. It does formalize something that is, is now policy. Do
2: you think that there would be any uh, talk of asset bubbles, namely the stock market, or negative rates?
1: Um, you know, I think the Fed has also been pretty consistent about that, uh, that mm-hmm. they do not want monetary policy to be the uh, the swing factor when it comes to asset bubbles in the sense that if they have an asset bubble that affects the banks that they supervise, uh, they want to handle that through supervision, not through monetary policy and deprive the economy of the monetary policy that they think it needs. Um, I, I know where you're getting at. They're, it's they're not the ultimate swing the,
2: factor in this market. <laughs> that's they caused the, it. That's the thing. They, they, they're the, they're yeah, more
1: than it. the swing factor, yeah. Melissa. You're, you're right. I'm just saying that that concern, right. and don't blame me for this because, know. you know, know. Guy know. likes to slap me around <laughs> like it's my fault. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just pointing out that the Fed, as far as I can tell, does not embrace the concern that monetary policy will cause asset bubbles. They want to be able to provide the, the monetary policy right. that the economy needs. And if they have a problem with stocks or assets, they want to address that through the supervisory method. That's been what I've been able to every time I've asked them, every time I've reported on it. That's the general consensus that I pick up.
2: All right. Steve, great to speak with you. Thank you.
1: Pleasure. Thank Steve you. Steve
2: Leisman, who does not fish, or play music typically at the Jackson Hole <laughs> Symposium. Um, Guy Dami, I will go to you since Steve
3: accused you of slapping him around. That's patently false. I love Steve <laughs> knows that I, I have the utmost respect. Nobody reports on the Fed and what's been going on with the Fed for the last however many years better than Steve Leisman. I've said that many times and I'll stand by that. My problem is the things that they don't you know that the Fed doesn't talk about for example, I understand uh, the dollar is not their purview, but I'll say again for the hundredth time. Their actions have led to this fall in the U.S. dollar. And whether you accept it or not, a falling dollar is inflationary, almost by definition. You know, BK mentioned lumber prices. You mentioned asset prices. So inflation is all around. But I said this yesterday. I think one of the main reasons the market took off late in the day was the news that they were going to prof- this profoundly extraordinarily speech that they were going to make about the way they view inflation, the way they measure it. And I think that's very bullish for the equity market. I don't particularly like it, but it doesn't matter what I like and don't like.
2: Uh, so let's get more on what investors should expect and bring in Mandy Sue, the Credit Suisse chief equity derivative strategist. Uh, Mandy, great to speak with you. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be here. Uh, To Guy's point and to Steve Leeson's point, I mean, the, the notion that the Fed will say that it will allow inflation to run run hotter than it had in the past. And the fact that there is really no inflation out there, I mean, that seems like it would be extremely friendly to the markets.
12: Yes, so I would agree. I think to go back to your previous point about how there hasn't really been inflation any time in the past, you know, ten years. You keep in mind that even though there hasn't been inflation, the Fed has been had been hiking right between twenty fifteen and twenty eighteen. So I think this is just the Fed telling the market we're taking inflation much more seriously, and more than that, we're taking the lack of inflation more seriously, and we're going to be on hold for much much longer this time around relative to the last crisis. I think. Overall, this is a dovish development. If you know that if they do switch to a average inflation targeting framework, you know it is dovish for the market. But I would say incrementally so because a lot of this has already been priced in. And also because what is driving market right now, what is the the source of uncertainty, it's not really on the monetary policy front. It's much more on the fiscal front. So I think investors understand, markets understand, the Fed's going to be there. The Fed can be more dovish, if need be, if things get worse. So incrementally, nothing really has changed on that front. Um, But really where the source of uncertainty is right now is more on the fiscal side.
2: So given the way you view the Fed backstop at this point and the uncertainty of of fiscal policy, what does that mean in terms of, of what the trade has been, specifically growth over value, and and does that remain intact? I mean, the Fed would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you believed in in the Fed backstop that growth is a place to be because rates are going to be near zero forever, practically forever. Um, But if you believe that there could be some risk from the fiscal side of it, I don't know, maybe that goes out the window.
12: Yeah, so I I do think this plays into the recent rotation that we have seen. I would say part of it is driven by this low rates forever being beneficial for growth stocks. But partly I would also say, you know, over the past two weeks, we've seen a pretty severe underperformance of value. And that is a sign that investors are starting to doubt the durability of this recovery, right? Without, you know, without a fiscal deal, without – um, a more a stimulus money coming, I think there's now more risk to the economic recovery going into the end of the year. And that's why I think tech is outperforming, because tech and growth stocks in general are more insulated from the pandemic-driven economic weakness that we have seen. So to me, you know, if we don't get a fiscal uh, deal, uh, if rates stay low forever, basically, then that should be uh, another uh, tailwind for growth stocks uh, going forward.
6: Hey, this is BK. I have a question. I mean, we've all assumed that the Fed cannot manufacture inflation. uh, But there have been some things that have happened, particularly interruptions of supply chains, uh, some supply disruptions that are creating price increases. So if we do actually happen to get inflation and the Fed is printing money, uh, what does that do to growth stocks? I mean, doesn't that inflation erode their earnings? And wouldn't that actually be bearish for the market rather than dovish?
12: Yeah, so I mean, you're right. So there's definitely been, you know, supply disruptions, but I would say right now this crisis is much more on the demand side, right? We have double-digit unemployment. We have, you know, record, um, disruptions on in the service industries. A lot of, you know, much, I would argue it's much more of a demand-driven, uh, economic weakness, in which case it's actually relatively deflationary. But, uh, certainly, you know, if, if we do get a sustained pickup in inflation, I think that would force you know, the Fed's hand, and that would, on the margins, be negative for growth stocks.
2: Mandy, great to speak with you. Thanks for your time, Mandy Zhu. Credit Suisse. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on what we could expect from Powell?
4: I think you 're going to hear more of this uh, dare I say garbage on symmetric inflation and, and where they 're going to allow for an inflation overshoot, uh, like most people here. Um, I think there is inflation inflation break evens are higher. Um, I also think the notion of the Fed not creating asset bubbles with monetary policy is one of the most absurd things i 've ever heard uh, in fact I, i've, I've I, you know the, since bailing out long term capital in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight Uh, all the way through to where we are, the Fed has created the asset bubbles that have created the crises. And and so um, I I don't think that the Fed really knows how to get out of this situation, even though they think fundamentally uh, they can assess this. So um, bottom line, buy equities. Buy equities as long as the Fed is in accommodative mode and run for the hills the minute you hear a whiff that they're actually changing their policy.
2: Yeah. FYI, Pete and BK are nodding their heads yes in agreement because we don't have the desk here. So you can't see all these guys, but they are. So that's where we stand. Uh, We've got some more news here on Palantir and its plans to go public. Let's get back to Josh Lipton for some details. Josh.
7: So, Melissa, making our way here through that S1, I just want to pull out some details for you from CEO Alex Karp, saying here, our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. We know uh, Alex Carp, a frequent critic of Silicon Valley, calls it intolerant, a monoculture, now actually moving his headquarters from Palo Alto, California, to Denver, Colorado. Also, this is interesting, says we have chosen sides. Our software is used by the United States, and it's allies in Europe and around the world. Some companies work with the United States as well as its adversaries. We do not. We believe that our government and commercial customers value this clarity. And specifically, uh, Dr. Karp saying we do not work with the Chinese Communist Party and have chosen not to host our platforms in China, which may limit our growth prospects. Our leadership believes that working with the Chinese Communist Party is inconsistent, he writes, with our culture and mission. Melissa, back to you.
2: And again, uh, Josh, in case you didn't mention it, the last hit this company, right? backed by Peter Thiel, which is a backer of the Republican Party, a longtime donor.
7: Peter Thiel did co-found it. Yeah. One, one thing to that point, Melissa, I would say, you're, you're also saying two classes of stock, A and oh. B, but they're also going to plan to introduce class F shares. Um, those are going to give the co-founders, like Thiel here, just below 50% of total voting power, Melissa. Oh,
2: OK, so super voting uh, stocks. Uh, Josh, thank you. Josh Lifton, Guy Adami just... Just quickly, they chose sides, and probably in this political environment, maybe rightly so.
3: Makes sense. I mean, it's good business, right? I mean, it, it, it really dovetails nicely with what's going on, so it sets them up very well uh, moving forward. So, I, again, I didn't read the Lord of the Rings books with the Palantir in it, but I'm sure it's fascinating. But BK is so ahead of his time with that one, so I give all the kudos to one Brian <laughs> Kelly.
2: All right. Coming up, going shopping. Investors liking Facebook today as the social media giant makes its biggest push yet into the e-commerce space. How are traders are playing the move? And later, why options traders are making big bets on a breakout for this name as a Dow gets ready for its makeover. We'll bring you the trade when Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook shares rallying today as the social media giant announces its biggest push yet into e-commerce. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details. Julia.
11: Melissa, Facebook shares rising 3.5% today on news of Facebook Shop. This is a shopping destination on the flagship Facebook app that for the first time will allow consumers to browse and search for products in a single destination, similar to the Instagram shopping destination launched in July. Now, before consumers were only able to shop on Facebook through a business's page, or via ads in the news feed. And the checkout tool that Instagram was testing, enabling people to complete purchases without leaving the app, is now rolling out to all businesses and creators in the US. And Instagram influencers will be able to sell products directly from Instagram Live videos. Now, the value for Facebook is getting small businesses to conduct e-commerce through its platform to drive ad revenue as well as user engagement. Now, even before today's announcement from Facebook, UBS, which has a buy rating on the stock, released a new note raising its price target and saying that the opportunity for businesses to sell directly to consumers through Facebook is a potential $10 billion revenue opportunity for the company over the next three to five years. UBS adding that Facebook is benefiting from the growth of e-commerce as well as its ability to drive sales. Melissa?
2: Julia, thank you. Julia Borson with those details on Facebook. That UBS note, by the way, the assumption behind that $10 billion revenue estimate over three to five years is 30 percent penetration of the businesses that have accounts on Facebook. So it's not like a wild and crazy sort of 100 percent penetration assumption, Tim. Uh, What do you think of Facebook here?
4: Yeah, and and remember that when we talked about the Facebook advertiser pushback, we talked about small and medium sized businesses really being the backbone. That's that's what this platform's all about. Facebook gets more criticism from the small business community than Apple does in terms of their ability to dictate the terms. By the way, so uh, this news actually came out in May, is my my recollection. And again, the the argument is that this is particularly useful at a time when a lot of small businesses have been closed. Um, some of that pressure on small businesses has been alleviated. There have been store openings, but I think this is really important. Uh, and again, I, I thought a lot of this was already in the price. I thought this was a driver, uh, you know, two months ago, three months ago. But the move in August from 230 to 280 on Facebook is quietly one of the biggest moves that nobody is talking about. And some of that uh, is a combination of, of, of what's happening on the Tic Tac opportunism and, and what's going on here with shops.
2: Yeah. UBS, by the way, raising the price target to 330 bucks here. Brian Kelly, what do you think of FB?
6: Yeah, I actually love this move. Yeah, I mean, I know it's been out there a bit. They've done it with Instagram, but it makes an awful lot of sense. If you're scrolling through and you want to buy something, why are you being shot out to Amazon or someplace else? And why not let a small business be able to sell directly? I know a lot of times if I'm on Instagram and I see a guy take a picture of his brokini, I want to know where to get it. Now I can just, boom, <laughs> click and buy. Oh, oh. What was that? A picture of, of his what? His what? His brokini.
12: Bro-kini. It's bro-kini.
2: A new oh right, 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 <laughs> yes. right, kind of like what Borat wears, guy.
3: Similar, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Unitard. so I have a brokini. Is that a problem? I mean, seriously, don't we all? I know <laughs> nope. Pedro you don't have to worry about it falling down.
2: That's for sure, right? It's got the straps that's near it. I mean, point. it'll stay it's on ex-
4: in rough waters. Nice laugh track.
2: <laughs> it's a public service, actually, <laughs> coming up. As Amgen, Salesforce, and Honeywell get set to join the Dow, options traders are eyeing one of these names for a big pop. We'll tell you which one when fast money returns. Another check on Salesforce after our session highs here up more than 13%. We're going to hear much more about the quarter coming up at the top of the hour. CEO Mark Benioff is joining Jim on Mad Money. That's at the top of the hour. Meantime, much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amgen, Salesforce, Honeywell, all moving higher in today's session on news. They're entering the Dow, and options traders are paying special attention to one name on that list. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike.
3: Hi, Melissa. Yeah, so the name we're looking at is Amgen. It traded seven times the average daily call volume, a big uptick there on the back of that news. The most active contracts were the 250 calls that expire at the end of this week, August 28th. One buyer paid $2 for 700 contracts on a total of about 3,000 contracts that traded. So, obviously, buyers of those call contracts are expecting that the rally that started on the back of that news could continue and the stock could close the week even higher than it is right now.
2: All right. Thanks for that. Mike, Mike Co. from More Options Action, full show, Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. It is time. For the final trail, let's go around
4: the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, how about that breakout in Alibaba? Some of this is due to the news that the uh, Ant Group is going to be listing, and the valuation has gone from 150 to 250 in the last six months. A lot of value there. Some of the parts, recent great earnings. Baba.
6: BK, Brian Kelly. So for me, you want to buy your fire insurance before your house catches on fire. That's always worked for me, although my house never caught on fire. But the point is, the VIX is really low. Buy some insurance S&P puts.
5: Pete Najarian. I'll tell you what, when you look at financials, we oftentimes skip over some of the asset guys. And I'll tell you, at KKR, we had some huge buying in there today, Mel. I think this is a stock that can absolutely explode through the
3: 52-week highs.
2: Guy, have you sent out any uh, pictures on your gram of your brocchini?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, in the commercial break, I was looking at the World Wide Web for the brokinis, and I'm thinking of buying my first thing ever on the Internet, and that would be a medium brokini. I'm also with Coco Beware on that. Yeah, yeah, huh? Amgen. Coco Beware is right.
2: All right. Thanks for watching Mad Money. Jim Kramer starts right now.
10: Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential.